Well, good morning. Thank you for having us. And as they would say in Kenya, Mungu Akubariki, God bless you. So we're glad to be here and to share about what God is doing in Kenya. So as you saw, we have a village, and it is a children's orphanage. Um, but shortly after Matt and I moved there, the children came to us and said, please stop calling us orphans. I have a mom and a dad now. I have brothers and sisters, and I have a home. I'm no longer an orphan. And so that, for us, was a real confirmation that the way we've set up this village is working, and it's effective. Um, so um, we have 10 children's homes um, with a Kenyan mom and dad. And then we have um, a school, we have a bakery, we have lots of self-sustainable projects with a dream of someday this village being fully self-sustainable. And then the purpose of that would be then we can go and do this in other parts of Africa or around the world as God leads. So we have 163 children at the village right now. We have 350 children in our school, so we're bringing in children from the local community as well. And God, when that happens, he's so amazing. He's always 10 steps ahead of us, right? <laughs> and um, so we had the vision for this school, but our limited thinking, it would be just for the children in our care. But we had the people in the local community knocking on our door and saying, hey, could we send our kids to your school? And we thought, well, yeah, why not? <laughs> and the beautiful thing with that is Kenya is very much a relational community. And um, you don't get things done without those relationships established. So by bringing in these local family uh, children, it developed relationships for our children with the local community. So they are no longer seen as outsiders. They're seen as a part of the community. So when they grow up, and they age out of the village and become working and living in the community, they've got those relationships established. And God knew that before we did. <laughs> and that is just, isn't our God amazing? <laughs> As those songs we sang this morning, it talks about the transforming power of God. And he's done that in each of our lives. But he doesn't stop with just us. He's wanting us to take that change and that hope to others in the world. And it has been such a privilege to get to go to Kenya and see what God is doing in another part of the world. And we, in our organization, a main part of that also is bringing people to come see what God is doing in other parts of the world. So I hope someday <laughs> you guys will come. Because I think in America, Africa is a scary place. All we hear is the bad stuff going there. And I'll tell you what, God is doing a lot of good. <laughs> and so, um, so we invite you to come, come experience it, and see what God has for you in that experience. Yeah. Thank you, Cheryl. Um, we also, um, oh, I think we have a PowerPoint slide. Uh, show available as well, but um, if you have some time after the service, we uh, we want to encourage all of you to uh, stop by our little information table before you grab a bite to eat for lunch, and uh, we have some newsletters. We want to encourage every one of you to pick up one of these. 
Uh, if you want to sign up for our newsletter list as well, there is a sign-up sheet out there. Uh, there's also a QRC code I'll give you in a minute if you're technologically savvy enough to use your smartphone for that. But one thing I would like to ask every one of you to do before you leave is grab a prayer card and pray for us. Because honestly, that is the most important, most powerful, and most effective thing you could ever possibly be doing for us. I, I can't tell you, I don't have enough time to tell you how many miracles God has brought into our community and our work there simply because of the prayers of thousands of people that are praying for us. I'll share a few of those miracles today, but um, I think we have, oh, we do have that slideshow up there. Um, so anyway, uh, I think the next slide shows a um, a view of our village. So we have 10 children's homes. We have a baby home. We have three guest lodges, I think, that are in that picture as well. And uh, those guest lodges, by the way, have hot showers and, and flush toilets and internet speed that works at dial-up modem speed. That's about as good as it gets for you in Africa. And um, we also, uh, as an added incentive, the, av the high temperature today in Eldoret, Kenya, is 72 degrees. It's that way all year long. It's one of the most temperate climates in the world. So while you're broiling here this summer, come and cool down in Eldoret, Kenya. Most people don't think of that in Africa. Or while you're freezing here in the winter, come and warm up in Eldoret. And um, so, uh, and um, the next slide shows a picture of one of our children's homes. This children's home is led by Tom and Amy Okiello. They are our heroes. They lead our largest home with 18 children, two of their own biological children, and 16 from the community. Well, the next picture shows our, uh, our baby home, uh, our information about our, our baby home. I think the bottom picture, though, there shows seven babies that came to us within the span of about a week. That was the largest influx of babies we've ever received at our village. That was just before the pandemic started. So they're all toddlers now. And, uh, but, uh, you know, on average, we get a call almost every month. Uh, and like I said, we're the only ministry in our whole region that has the capacity to care for babies because many of them come uh, malnourished and sick and they need 24-hour care for the first few months of their lives. And then we begin to transition them into the, into the children's homes. Um, but if you want to find out more about that, let us know afterwards. We want to be able to bless and shower every new baby that comes to us with prayer and God's uh, sense of destiny upon their lives. But um, the next um, uh, picture shows something uh, Pastor Blake mentioned uh, we have a, a new partnership. We're beginning to, God's beginning to open some doors in other countries. Uh, one of our newest partnerships is in Romania, in southern Romania, at a place called the, Deni the Denisa Care Center, and they have two children's homes. They also have uh, a, a Christian school and a, and a really strong after-school Christian care program. And uh, we're planning on sending several teams to Kenya next, next year, we're also planning on sending a short-term team to Romania as well. So think about that. Uh, and Lord willing, uh, we might be sending a team to Colombia, South America, and India as well. So pray about that. Um, 
But, uh, but again, one thing about the Denise Care Center, uh, just simply because of the reality of the place and time we're living in right now, and Romania being flooded with millions of Ukrainian refugees, uh, our Denise Care Center is also helping some of the refugee children and their families, so you would have an opportunity to pray for, bless, and help Ukrainian refugees as well uh, at this time. Um, the next slide shows that QRC code. If you know what to do with your smartphone there, you can, and you can sign up online there, or you can do it old school at our information table. That's your choice. Um, but what I really want to share with you about today is a story from my ma- favorite minor prophet in the Old Testament. And his name is Jonah. Probably some of you have heard of him. I actually really identify with Jonah. I consider him a reluctant missionary. Because if you know the first part of the story, you know that God asked him to go to Nineveh. And he ran away from God. Or he tried. I should say he tried. But actually it's impossible to run away from God. It is. Everywhere, anywhere Jonah tried to go, anywhere any of us might try to go, if we're trying to run, run away from God, what God wants us to do, we won't succeed. And, and Jonah uh, was presented an opportunity in the belly of a great fish to reconsider the error of his ways. And uh, the reason I relate to Jonah is, interestingly, when I first started out in ministry as a youth pastor, the last thing on my mind ever was becoming a missionary to Africa. In fact, this will date me, but my favorite Christian song of that era was a song by Scott Wesley Brown. The title of the song was, Lord, Please Don't Send Me to Africa. (laughs) Any of you remember that song? Any of you? uh, Oh, I see a few hands. Aren't you glad God has a sense of humor? He doesn't always send us where where we want to go. He sends us where we need to go. And I believe every one of us in this room, if you believe in Jesus, you are a missionary. And you have a missions field. Your mission field might not be Africa. It might be right across the street from you. To me, a missionary is not necessarily someone who crosses the sea but someone who sees the cross. And that's what compels all of us, every one of us, to go and make disciples. That's why I identify with Jonah. But I I think about while he, you know, Jonah, according to the book of 2 Kings, was a recognized prophet of Israel. And here he was being given an opportunity to prophetically declare God's word. He'd already done it many times, maybe hundreds of times. Why did he resist God's voice in this case? And I've often thought, what were some of the things running through Jonah's mind? I think the next slide shows a a list of those excuses, but I'm going to go through them real briefly. The first excuse, I think, is simply it was far away. You know, Jonah was called to go from northern Israel to Nineveh, and you just didn't get there right away. You know, he didn't just go to his local rent-a-camel shop and show up in Nineveh the next day. It probably took him 
uh, a week or two at least. And even with modern travel today, you know, you're still going to have to um, drive to your closest airport or if you really want to save money, and it'll probably save you time anyway, drive to Portland or, or Seattle. And, you know, that, that's what from here, about a five-hour drive either way. And you're still going to have to get on a plane, two planes at least, for 10, 10 or 12 hours each leg. And, uh, and you're still not going to get to Eldoret. You still have to stay overnight in Nairobi. Then you can either take a quick 40-minute plane ride or an eight-hour bus ride, your choice. Um, and finally, you'll get to Eldoret, Kenya. It's a long way. And for some people, that alone is, I don't want to go to Africa. But what would be another excuse? The next one, I think, is what I hear. I hear this a lot. I think it's probably the number one excuse people have for not fulfilling something that God asks them to do that's significant. Because anything significant God asks us to do is going to cost us resources. It's going to cost us time or money or other resources. And yes, our time and our resources are limited. But God's resources are unlimited. And I want you to think about the rooster in this picture. Is that rooster up there? No, it's not. Oh, he's not. There he is. This picture was taken 14 years ago. I know I haven't changed a bit. But (laughs) this was when we first moved to Eldoret. We were invited to speak in a church much like this, except it it was a room in about the same size as this room. But... It was it not it didn't just have people in the room. It had sheep and goats and chickens. And I thought, what is going on? And I didn't understand until they took up the offering. And that's when I realized that was the offering. When I saw an offering plate going around the room, there was no money in that offering. There were eggs and vegetables and a growing collection of sheep, goats, and chickens. And this lovely church that had no money whatsoever, absolutely insist on giving Cheryl and me this rooster. And it was a beautiful gift. We were deeply, deeply grateful. But in the back of my mind, I was also thinking, what in the world are we going to do with this rooster? We had just opened our first children's home. We had 52 acres of farmland that we had just purchased, but we hadn't planted anything. I think we had just bought a dairy coat, a dairy, not a dairy goat, a dairy cow, and, and we had a dream someday of becoming a fully self-sustainable village. So we took this rooster in a cardboard box, brought him back to our first children's home, gave the rooster to our house parents, fully expecting they would eat him for dinner. And they said, no, no, we're not going to eat him. I didn't know this. That very week, they had built a chicken coop. They had bought two dozen layer hens. And they said, you know, for now, let's put the rooster in the hen house and we'll figure out something else later. Well, something did figure itself out. And let's just say through unintended consequences, this rooster became the founder of our entire poultry project. Thing, he was very, very prolific. You know, today... We lay hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of eggs every day. We harvest hundreds and hundreds of chickens every month. But it is, and, it, and it still today is by far our most profitable sustainability project. But it has also inspired dozens of other farming projects. Today we, 
we grow 75% of our own food. And all the excess sales from the projects combined pay for half of our general operating budget. And we've already begun to replicate what we've done here to help another children's village north of us in Katale, Kenya. And now through a new partnership, we have the opportunity to help establish self-sustainable children's villages in seven other countries in the world. And you know the best part about all that? Is it started with a rooster from a church in rural Kenya that literally had no money whatsoever. But look what God did with what they gave. So don't tell me about your excuses. God, it's impossible. Well, he's the God of the impossible. If God is asking you to do something that seems impossible, that's exciting. If God is asking you to do something beyond your own limited resources, watch God do some miracles. And watch God bring some roosters into your life. Um, What would be another excuse that Jonah might have had? This is an excuse I have to confess I've had a few times. Um, the, The fear that people won't listen. Um, this, um, you know, there, there is a fear sometimes. If we feel in our hearts God wants us to say something to somebody else in our lives, a family member, a friend, a co-worker, a neighbor, uh, sometimes we have this fear of rejection. What happens if they don't listen? And, um, and I think that's a real fear. And uh, about four years ago, we... We had a, a team from a church in the Portland area, Canby Foursquare Church. They came to our village, and uh, their pastor came to us, or came to our pastor at our village and asked, what can we do to help uh, an unmet need in the community? And, and our pastor said, you know, why don't we help senior citizens? And our primary mission, to be honest, is helping children, youth, orphaned and abandoned children. And, and um, we had never thought about reaching out to the seniors in our community. But we decided we would spo- the, the church sponsored a lunch, and we invited everyone to come. We, we had, um, I think we were optimistically hoping for 100 people to show up. We made meals for 150 just in case. Well, 500 people showed up. And, um, and then uh, I think in the picture also, the, our pastor at our village suggested uh, to this team that came with us, uh, why don't you, as a sign of honor and respect, would you mind washing their feet? We thought, we'd, we're all over that. We'd love to do that. And, um, and this team was a group of what Kenyans and East Africans would call Mzungu. Mzungu means white person, foreigner, outsider. But, you know, when they began to wash their feet, we didn't really predict this outcome. But if you think through it a little more carefully, it made sense. Most of those senior citizens were old enough to remember growing up under British colonialism. So that simple act of washing their feet broke down so many barriers. People began to weep. At the end of the lunch, we did a brief prayer service. At the end of the prayer service, we we asked if anyone in the room would like to become a Christian. And uh, we knew that many of them already were, but we were pleasantly surprised when 120 people said yes for the very first time. Three of those people were three ladies over 100 years old. One was 105, the oldest 
person in our community. And she stood up and she told everyone, you know, I have followed my witch doctor my entire life. But today, I finally decided to become a Christian. And last year, at the age of 107, she went to be with Jesus. In that same group, there was a 76 or 77-year-old man named Amos B. Watt who came with his wife, and they both received Christ. And if you look up his name on the Internet, you'll actually find out he won the Olympic gold medal in the steeplechase in the 1968 Mexico City Olympics. And he's one of the two fathers of Kenyan running. And uh, actually, Eldoret is known as the running capital of Africa. It's where all the premier Kenyan runners come to live and train. We're at 7,000 feet in elevation. That's partly why it's cooler up there. And um, so some people that are into running occasionally ask me, oh, I'd love to come and run with the Kenyans. And I say, great, good luck keeping up with them. But um, um, what would be another excuse? The next slide, I think, shows a young man um, with a younger friend of his. So the young man, his, his name is Joseph, and he, he came to our village when he was 11 years old. We, were, we had just arrived, and, and um, uh, we began to hear his story. And at 11 years old, he, he had actually lost his parents, both of his parents, to AIDS when he was six years old. And for five years, he survived on the streets of Eldoret, begging during the day and sleeping in a tree at night because that was the only safe place for Joseph to sleep. And I imagine there were a lot of nights he was sitting in that tree wondering if anyone in Eldoret, Kenya cared. You know, um, this is more of an excuse, actually, from the perspective of the receiver rather than the sender. Because I think there are people in Ephrata, Washington, that actually think Christians don't care. And I challenge you today to prove them wrong. Prove them wrong. And demonstrate your love and your care for them through your words and your actions today and through this week. Well, Joseph came to our village through a miraculous set of circumstances. He found a home. He had never been to school before in his whole life. And we quickly enrolled him in our school, found out how intelligent he was very quickly. So he, he um, advanced a couple grades every year and graduated when he was 19 years old. He graduated from high school. He took the Kenyan secondary exam, which is like their SAT exam, and he tested in the top 2% of all Kenyans nationwide. He's just finishing up a degree in computer software engineering at Nairobi University, and already getting interviews from companies that want to hire him. You know, he's gone a long way from sleeping in a tree at night. And I'm so glad that he found out that, that people do care. Well, what would be another excuse? I think Jonah was different. When God asked Jonah to go to Nineveh, he was already accustomed to delivering the word of the Lord to Israelites. And these people spoke a different language. They looked different. They acted different. And when I got off the plane in Eldoret for the very first time, I quickly realized nobody else in the community looked like me, and that was okay. When I, you know, 15 years ago, I was in a little better shape, and when I got off the plane and started, you know, playing with kids and walking around the community, people would, 
yell out to me and say, hey, John Cena. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know if any of you are into wrestling or not, but, but, but most Kenyans are big wrestling fans. And, um, but as I've gotten older and more mature and grown this and it's gotten all gray, you know, when I go through downtown Eldoret now, people yell out to me and they say, hey, Kenny Rogers. <laughs> well, apparently more of you knew who Kenny Rogers was than John Cena. But, you know, this is true. Most Kenyans are actually big country western fans. A little known fact. But, you know, wherever you go in the world, if you do cross-cultural ministry in a different culture, sometimes it's a little unsettling. You don't know what's going to happen. And, and the next slide even show, demonstrates this even more. Because not only was Jonah different, Nineveh was different. When Cheryl and I first moved to Kenya and we spent our first Christmas in Eldoret, we started getting homesick because we noticed nobody was putting up Christmas trees or Christmas lights or a lot of the traditions we associate with Christmas here. We did find out most people in Kenya actually do celebrate Christmas. They gather together as a family. They'll eat a meal. They'll give their children a traditional gift of new clothing, typically. And then they'll go to church. And it's something very simple. No decorations, typically. Um, but one, thing, one tradition we did find, um, you know, pretty much from the very beginning, their downtown grocery store um, would put up a, uh, or actually it was a grocery and a department store, they put up a six-foot-tall robotic Santa Claus on December 1st every year. And it had this uh, Santa Claus had a motion sensor on him so that when you walked into, into the store, he began to jiggle and shake and sing the Yellow Rose of Texas. I tried to get a, you know, a handle on that fact and wondered if Kenyans really believe that's a Christmas carol. But, you know, the, some of my friends that are, that are a bit more savvy, they just smiled and said, Karibu, Kenya. Welcome to Kenya. Because anywhere you go in the world, you're going to observe things that just don't make sense. I've had Kenyan friends of mine come visit me in Portland, Oregon, where Cheryl and I reside, and, and walk around downtown, downtown Portland, scratch their heads and say, you know, there are things in Portland that just don't make sense. Anywhere you go in the world, you're going to find this. And it's unsettling, it's different, and it, it sometimes makes us nervous. But here's what happened when Jonah finally obeyed the word of the Lord. In Jonah chapter 3, verse 3, Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming 40 more days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. That's an amazing story. It is. And, and scholars actually believe that at that time in history, at least geographically speaking, 
Nineveh might have been the largest city in the world. Now, I'm trying to make a very weak comparison here between Nineveh and Eldoret, Kenya. I know maybe before today, very few, if any of you ever heard of Eldoret, Kenya, um, you know, um, it's, um, however, 20 years ago, it was uh, a smaller agricultural community of about 25 to 30,000 people. Now it's a city of a million and a half. It is, has been the fastest growing city in East Africa for the last two decades. And, the, and it's now the third largest city in Kenya. Um, in that span of time, right around the time we arrived to live there, they tried to install signal lights to keep up with the rapid growth. And, and nobody got the memo, green light, red light, what does that mean? Why does it matter? And they actually had 45 accidents in 30 minutes, immediately disengaged the signal lights and went back to old school pandemonium. My wife Cheryl's never gotten the courage to drive in Kenya. Me, I consider it an adrenaline rush. Um, my greatest, um, I guess, uh, transition moving back to the U.S. after living there for a couple years was driving down Interstate 5 and thinking, this is so incredibly boring. Everyone is following each other like lemmings. I need to find coffee just to stay awake. But I don't have that problem in Kenya. Anything could happen at any moment in time. It is so incredibly exciting. I love it. But Nineveh was a significant city. Imagine, if you will, what it would look like if you went through Credo, Washington, and started sharing Jesus with people. And everyone you came into contact with started receiving Christ. Started repenting of their sin and turning their hearts completely to God. How that would change this community. Something even more significant actually happened in Nineveh. Nineveh was quite a bit larger than Ephrata, Washington, even back then probably at least 100,000 people. But it was also at that time in history, it was the capital city of the superpower of the world. Imagine instead if you were to go into downtown Washington, D.C. and start preaching the gospel and everyone, every politician, every lawyer, every person in Washington, D.C. repented of their sin and turned their hearts to God. What that would do to change this nation and this world. And that's what happened in Nineveh. It's hard to imagine what something would look like like that today in our context today. The next picture, I think that one right there, kind of gives you a little bit of a glimpse. You may or may not understand that there are millions of people in this picture. And this occurred only two decades ago in a city a little bit west of Eldoret called Lagos in a country called Nigeria. Um, and it was actually the largest gathering of Christians in human history up to this point in time. 20 million people gathered in one place at one time, and in one night over 1 million people received Jesus Christ. Things like that are happening all over Africa right now 
for the last five decades, uh, Africa has seen more Christian growth percentage-wise than any other continent in the world. But it wasn't always that way. 85, 86 years ago, um, probably only 1% to 2% of East Africa was Christian. But then something happened. It's called the Great East African Revival. You can look it up on the Internet, but what you won't find is precisely how it started. And it wasn't until about 15 years ago when we were doing a a training seminar for a 1,000 pastors uh, on the border of Uganda, Rwanda, and um, Tanzania, near that area, I had heard that the Great East African Revival had started in that region. So I asked these 1,000 pastors, surely they would know. And they said, well, they got... They all got big smiles on their face because all their grandparents got saved in that revival. I said, how did it start? And I expected to hear about a famous East African evangelist. And they said, no, it started in a prayer meeting with 25 orphaned children in an orphanage. These 25 children started a prayer meeting. And in that prayer, they said, Lord, change me and help me to change the world. That was their prayer. That prayer meeting quickly, the whole community within a week or so started joining in that prayer meeting. Within the span of three or four months, 5,000 prayer meetings just like that erupted all over East Africa. And, um, and approximately 50 million people, 70% of the population of East Africa at that time, came to know Jesus. That is a move of God. I pray that God, in his mercy and his grace, would bring revival again to this nation. But here's the last part of Jonah's story, and I think it's important to hear. At the end of chapter 3, beginning with verse 10, when God saw what they did, And how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow, uh, slow to anger and abounding in love. I've always been puzzled by that response because why would a respectable prophet of Israel be angry at God for bringing people to repentance? And, and I think This is where I think the most important part of Jonah's resistance to God comes to the surface. Because Jonah's prophetic peers had already begun to warn Israel that God was bringing judgment on Israel. And according to Jonah's prophetic peers, the arm of God's justice in this particular instance was going to be the Assyrian Empire and Nineveh 
was its capital city. I think Jonah's complaint to God primarily was, God, this doesn't seem fair. This doesn't seem right. These people don't deserve your grace. And in reality, none of us do. Grace, by its very definition, is undeserved, but freely given at great cost. But yet that was the response of Jonah. And so my question to all of us is, who are the Ninevites in your life? Who are the people that you are afraid to go to, unwilling to go to, or that you are resistant to go to in your own life? And I, I remember about five years ago, we were uh, doing a medical outreach. We do a couple of these normally every year. And uh, we were doing a medical outreach near Eldoret, Kenya, in a poor community. And uh, we always set up a prayer tent next to the medical tent. And I am often in the prayer tent with a couple Kenyan pastors because I'm not medically trained. Um, but we invite everyone to pray with us. And um, I looked around this community, and I noticed there were a lot of Muslims in this particular community. So I asked the two Kenyan pastors with me, why are there so many Muslims? And they said, well, this is where all of the Somali refugees in our region of Kenya live. And I said, oh, how many? And they said, well, there's about 40,000. And I, I thought, oh, okay. And actually, in the whole nation of Kenya, there are two and a half million Somalian refugees. And I, I don't know if you know it or not, but Somalia itself is ranked the second most unreached, inaccessible nation in the world to the gospel of Jesus Christ. But right next door is Kenya, where we don't have those restrictions, what we have are two and a half million opportunities. And, um, and I, as, as we opened up the medical tent and the prayer tent, I started noticing a few Somali families coming through. And the two Kenyan pastors that were with me uh, ushered them through without even offering to pray with them. So I, I, uh, I thought, hmm, maybe these are the, Somali, these are the uh, Ninevites to, these, to this community. So I asked them, I said, why, why won't you pray with these people? And they said, well, they're Muslim. They wouldn't be interested. And I, I challenged them that day. I said, you know, you know, just for today, would you mind, would you, uh, I hope you wouldn't mind if you just invited everyone to pray with you. I think everyone deserves the same respect and the same opportunity. And um, so, of course, the next, guy, the next guy that walked in, he walked straight up to me. I found out later he was an elder in the Somali community. And he walked straight up to me and looked at me, and I looked at him, and I smiled, and I said, Sir, would you like to pray with me? He said, No, I am Muslim. And he turned around, and he started walking away. And I thought, Oh, well, great. This kind of proves the point of these two Kenyan pastors. But but I, I, I wondered why he was turning away, and I think he actually expected that we would refuse him and reject him if he declined to pray with me. So I said, wait a minute, didn't you come here to see the doctor? And he looked at me kind of curious. I smiled at him. I pointed at the medical tent. And I said, you know, the doctor is right over there if you really do want to go see him. At that moment, his whole countenance changed. He grabbed my hand. He started kissing my hand and weeping and over and over again saying, thank you. Because I think for him, that was a really big deal. 
that we were willing to accept him unconditionally. Uh, well, and, and actually, in reality, that's what God did with every one of us. Romans 5, 8, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And, um, you know, this elder went to get treated. He got examined. He got some medicine. And he went back home, and that's a beautiful story in itself. But it doesn't end there. First of all, um, I think within an hour or so, I started noticing a lot more families coming through the prayer tent. And uh, I thought, you know, I started asking a few of them, how did you hear about this? And every one of them said, well, there's this elder from our community who told us. He had a lot of influence. He told all of his friends. uh, At the end of the day, I checked with our registration area. We had already registered 5,000 people, and over half were from the Somali community. But then about two hours before we were closing that night, this lady came in, and a friend of hers was helping her. And I I looked at this lady, and I noticed you couldn't see the pupils in her eyes. Her eyes were completely white. And I've seen this in in a few of our medical camps in our region because we have no eye surgery clinics in our region of Kenya. This lady had cataracts in her eyes so thick, she was probably completely blind. And she and her friend came up to me, and I asked, can I pray with you both? And they nodded their heads. We prayed. And when we got done, this lady opened her eyes, and her eyes were perfectly clear. And, you know, she began to weep. I began to hyperventilate. And, I mean, honestly, my body reacted immediately, but it took my brain a minute to process what God had done. But once that minute was done, it didn't matter anymore. Because hundreds of people started converging on this prayer tent, begging for prayer. Somalian or Kenyan, it did not matter anymore at all. And there were other miracles straight out of the book of Acts that occurred in the next two hours. But the greatest miracle that occurred, because it had never, ever happened in this community ever before, eight Somali families, one by one, came up to me and these two Kenyan pastors and asked how Do we become Christians? And amen. Well, at the end of the day, those two pastors confessed to me. I think they were convicted by the Holy Spirit. They said, you know, before today, we never thought about reaching out to our Somali neighbors. But from that moment on, that changed forever. And there is a a partnership that has developed between these two churches And this Somali community that is incredible. God did a miracle. God did a miracle. So, I guess in closing, what is it that God is saying to you this morning? What is it God is speaking into your heart today? Who is he asking you to go to that perhaps you've stalled? I have to confess, I waited 25 years before I ever went to Africa. I'm so glad I finally did. But you know, before God ever demonstrated his grace to the Ninevites, he demonstrated his grace to Jonah. It says in Jonah chapter 3, verse 1, God delivered the word of the Lord a second time. If I were God, I probably would have said, okay, Jonah, I'll find someone else. But I'm thankful that God is 
who he is. I'm not through with you yet. Jonah, maybe God's saying to some of you today, I'm not through with you yet. I still have things for you to do. So start saying yes and stop stalling. Can we bow our heads in prayer? Lord Jesus, I pray right now in the precious and holy name of Jesus. Maybe there are people you're speaking to right now. And maybe you're quickly identifying who are the people that they need to go to and need to share the love of Jesus through their words and their actions. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would help all of us have a sense of your vision, your heart, your perspective for the brokenhearted, for the, those that need your healing, those that need salvation. And Lord, I pray that we would go out and prove to the community of Fredo, Washington, and beyond that Christians do care. Through our words and our actions, help us today. Empower and anoint each one of us by your Holy Spirit to go out and be your missionaries. I pray in the precious and holy name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, mungu o wabariki. God bless all of you. Amen.